Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. A massive year in terms of news events. A year that would see an increase in tensions in America as the battle for racial equality raged on. It would be the year in which a scandal in the UK involving call girls, Russian spies and MPs would eventually bring down the government. The Beatles would begin their dominance of the UK charts, signalling the beginning of the British invasion. The Russians would make history as the first woman blast off into space and Martin Luther King would declare to the world that he had a dream. Along with the Great Train Robbery, the beginning of what would become known as the Moors Murders, the death of the Pope and the assassination of the US President, it truly was one of the most remarkable 12 months of the swinging decade. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the hits and the headlines from 1963. 1963 was renowned as the year that witnessed one of the harshest winters ever seen in the UK. The first four inches of snow arrived on Boxing Day as Brenda Lee was rocking around the Christmas tree on the wireless. Then, on the night of December the 29th, bitter Siberian easterly winds delivered another ten inches of drifting powdery snow. Even in central London, the snow level was measured at seven inches deep, with drifts of up to two feet. Further out at Gravesend, 14 inches of snow lay on the ground, with the drifts reaching 6 feet tall. And northern counties were recording snowfall of 2 feet and over. New Year's Eve was one of the quietest anyone could remember, with few Londoners wanting to brave the freezing weather, and temperatures remaining close to or below zero until March. Despite some minor thawing, the white blanket covered the country for the next three months. In fact, mid-January, Arctic winds brought another four inches of snow to the capital and another 12 inches to Yorkshire. In early February, the Siberian cold returned with yet another six to eight inches of snow in certain areas. Road and rail transport was severely disrupted. The airports closed and even the Thames froze over. The Navy managed to keep some of the dockyards open by using an icebreaker but the London docks remained closed with ice flows and mini icebergs on the river. 
The knock-on effect of this was around a 30% increase in the price of fresh food, and it was reported that millions of milk bottles disappeared under the deep blanket of snow. To add to the misery, power cuts became the norm. Rubbish could not be collected, and people had to get water from road tankers as the main supplies remained frozen for weeks on end. There were very few, if any, sports fixtures played with Chelsea getting so fed up they flew off to Malta to play a friendly and ended up having to stay for a week until they could return home. But it wasn't all bad news. Although it was bitterly cold, January and February were exceptionally sunny. And finally, in March, the thaw set in. The ice and the snow melted away, the dairies got the milk bottles back, and Cliff Richard tried to cheer everyone up with thoughts of a summer holiday. The sun shines brightly, we're going where the sea is blue, we've seen it in the movies, now let's see if it's true, everybody has a summer holiday, doing things they always wanted to, so we're going on a summer holiday, to make our dreams come true. January, and in America, events would unfold, leading to an increase in the already volatile battle for racial equality. George Wallace became governor of Alabama, and in his highly charged inaugural speech, he would proclaim segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Our day will come. In April, in Birmingham, Alabama, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference kicked off their campaign against racial segregation in the United States with the city. And nine days later, Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttlesworth and others were arrested in Birmingham following a protest and charged with parading without a permit.
the 16th of April, Martin Luther King issued his letter from Birmingham jail. The letter, also known as the letter from Birmingham City Jail and the Negro is your brother, was an open letter defending the strategy of non-violent resistance to racism. It said that people have a moral responsibility to break unjust laws and to take direct action rather than waiting potentially forever for justice to come through the courts. Responding to being referred to as an outsider, King wrote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. On May the 2nd, thousands of black people, many of them children, were arrested while protesting segregation in Birmingham. Public Safety Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor later unleashed fire hoses and police dogs on the demonstrators. June the 11th, Alabama Governor George Wallace stood in the doorway of the University of Alabama to protest against integration, before eventually stepping aside and allowing blacks James Hood and Vivian Malone to enrol. On the same day, President Kennedy broadcast a historic address in which he sent a civil rights message to Congress urging it to pass a Civil Rights Act. In his speech, Kennedy asked for the kind of equality of treatment that we would want for ourselves. On the 18th, James Meredith became the first black person to graduate from the University of Mississippi. And ten days later, on August the 28th, Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to an audience of at least 250,000 during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day 
down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Despite Martin Luther King's groundbreaking words, the violence continued. And on the 15th of September, four people were killed and 22 injured when a bomb blast ripped through the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. On October the 8th, Sam Cooke and his band were arrested after trying to register at White's Only Motel in Louisiana. In response to the incident, Cook wrote and recorded the song, The Change Is Gonna Come. The story goes that on October the 8th, en route to Shreveport, Louisiana, Cook called ahead to the Holiday Inn North to make reservations for his wife Barbara and himself. But when he and his group arrived, the desk clerk glanced at them nervously and explained that there were no vacancies. While his brother Charles protested, Sam was fuming, yelling to see the manager and refusing to leave until he received an answer. His wife nudged him, attempted to calm him, saying, they'll kill you, to which he responded, they ain't going to kill me because I'm Sam Cooke. When they eventually persuaded Cooke to leave, the group drove away, calling out insults and blaring their horns. arrived at the Castle Motel on Sprague Street downtown, the police were waiting for them, arresting them for disturbing the peace. Apparently, upon hearing Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind in 1963, Cook was so moved that such a poignant song about racism in America could come from someone who was not black. He was ashamed that he'd not yet written something like that himself. However, his image and fears of losing his largely white fan base had prevented him from doing so. Following his arrest, Cook wrote the song which initially was released as a B-side the following year. Cook loved the song so much, it was immediately incorporated into his repertoire.
in a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come Oh, yes it will And on November the 10th, Malcolm X made his historic speech at the Northern Negro Grassroots Leadership Conference in Detroit, Michigan. The address became known as the Message to the Grassroots Speech and described the difference between the Black Revolution and the Negro Revolution. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Malcolm X used the speech to describe the contrast between the house negro and the field negro during slavery and in the modern age. And, like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, it is now considered one of the most important addresses in the civil rights movement. Hang around, it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Yes, it will. Then I go to my brother and I say, Brother, help me, please. But he winds up knocking me. in the Far East continued as the troubles in Vietnam escalated. In January, the Viet Cong won their first major victory in the Battle of At Bac. May saw the start of what would become known as the Buddhist Crisis, when the army of the Republic of Vietnam opened fire on Buddhists who were defying a ban on flying the Buddhist flag on Visak, birthday of Gautama Buddha. In total, nine were killed. In June, 67 Buddhist protesters were injured when the army of the Republic of Vietnam rained liquid chemicals on the heads of the demonstrating crowds. 
June in perhaps the most famous image from the entire conflict. Thich Chuang Duc, a Vietnamese Mahayana Buddhist monk, burned himself to death at a busy Saigon Road intersection. Chuang Duc was protesting the persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnamese government, led by Gong Dinh Den. Photographs of his self-immolation were circulated widely across the world and brought attention to the policies of the Diem government. John F. Kennedy said in reference to a photograph of Duc on fire, no news picture in history has generated so much emotion around the world as that one. Malcolm Brown would eventually win a Pulitzer Prize for his photograph of the monk's death. The following month would see the double seven-day scuffle, so-called as it took place on the 7th of July. Secret police, loyal to the brother of President Goding Dem, attacked American journalists, including Peter Arnett and David Halberstam, at a demonstration in South Vietnam during the Buddhist crisis. And a few weeks later, Buddhist pagodas across South Vietnam were raided by troops, arresting thousands and leaving hundreds dead. In the wake of the raids, the Kennedy administration ordered the US Embassy in Saigon to explore alternative leadership in the country, opening the way towards a coup against Diem. Diem was eventually arrested and assassinated in November, with the leader of the coup, General Duong Vang Minh, taking over as President of South Vietnam. In 1963, we witnessed the independence of Kenya and Zanzibar from the United Kingdom. And after a coup in Togo, President Sylvanus Olympio was assassinated. It was the first coup d'etat in the French and British colonies in Africa that had achieved independence in the 50s and 60s, and Olympio is remembered as the first president to be assassinated during a military coup in Africa. Yeah.
On September the 16th, Malaysia was formed through the merging of the Federation of Malaya and the British Crown Colony of Singapore, North Borneo and Sarawak. Four weeks later, rioters burnt down the British Embassy in Jakarta to protest the formation of the new country. January, the steam locomotive, British Railways number 60103, better known as the Flying Scotsman, made its last scheduled run. And in March, Dr Richard Beeching issued a report entitled The Reshaping of British Railways, calling for huge cuts in the country's rail network. The report had been commissioned after it had been announced that British Rail had run at a loss since 1955, following rapid growth in car ownership and use after the end of petrol rationing. By 1962, the network's annual loss for the year had reached £104 million and was growing rapidly. Beeching was given the task of turning it into a profit-making operation. He found that half of all existing stations accounted for just 2% of passenger income received, and that 1,762 of the 4,300 stations open to passengers had annual receipts totalling less than £2,500. Additionally, one third of track was used by just 1% of passengers. But the most controversial part of the report was that Beeching recommended that one third of the country's track, over 6,000 miles, should be closed entirely. 
and that nearly 2,500 stations should also be shut down, including several on lines that would otherwise remain open. The policy became known as Beeching's Axe. And in August, one of Britain's most notorious crimes took place, the Great Train Robbery. A 15-strong gang of thieves attacked a Royal Mail train on its way from Glasgow to London. The robbery plan was hatched after a postal worker, nicknamed the Ulsterman, leaked details of a train journey carrying vast amounts of cash. Gordon Goody and Buster Edwards based the heist on this information and brought in accomplices Bruce Reynolds, Ronnie Biggs, Charlie Wilson and Roy James. The men later joined forces with members of the South Coast Raiders, a gang experienced in rigging train signals in order to stop engines. The train came to a stop at a red signal outside Leighton Buzzard in Buckinghamshire in the early hours of the 8th of August. Soon realising there was a problem, the driver, Jack Mills, became embroiled in a tussle with one of the robbers, overpowering him before he was hit over the head with a cosh by another member of the gang. Mills was then made to drive the train down the line to a designated spot where the sackfuls of money could be unloaded. In total, 128 sacks weighing 2.5 tonnes were moved off the train. The gang fled the scene within 30 minutes. The gang then drove to a remote farm where they began to distribute the money between themselves. The first robber to be captured was Roger Cordry, just six days later. Police steadily made a number of arrests throughout 1963, making their last one Bruce Reynolds in 1968. Ronnie Biggs would go on to become the most famous of the criminals after he escaped prison in 1965. Biggs went on the run for more than 35 years, first travelling to Australia and then building a life and raising a family in Brazil. He eventually returned to the UK in 2001 and served a further eight years in prison before being released on compassionate grounds in 2009. Eight of the robbers were sentenced to 30 years behind bars, with another three given 25 years. The Great Train Robbers are estimated to have stolen more than £2.6 million, around £53 million today. 
You can hear a full two-hour account of the planning, execution and aftermath of the robbery by taking a listen to our earlier episode, episode number 10. This year, Perth was rocked by the Australia Day shootings, and on January the 26th, two people were shot dead and three injured by Eric Edgar Cook. The residents of Perth were paralysed with fear as police implored them to lock their doors and cars. What was not known at that time was that Cook was a multiple murderer responsible for numerous attacks. It was not until September 1963 that he was charged with murder, that of university student Shirley MacLeod, who was shot dead at a house in Dalkeith in August. You're the, devil in the city's first known serial killer, Cook eventually became the last man hanged in Western Australia. I thought that I was in heaven, but I was sure surprised. Heaven help me, I didn't see the devil in your eyes. The Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in San Francisco finally closed its doors in March this year, with the last 27 prisoners being transferred to other prisons on the orders of the United States Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And in May, a smallpox outbreak hit Stockholm in Sweden, lasting right through until July, ending a period of over 30 years during which Sweden had been free from the disease. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are. Devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are. Devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are.
The sadistic crimes of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley shocked the nation to its core throughout 1963 and 1964. Across Britain, there was an outpouring of loathing for the pair, who snatched children off the street, sexually abused them and tortured them to death. Their first victim was 16-year-old Pauline Reed, who vanished on July 12, 1963, on her way to a disco near her home in Gorton, Manchester. She was lured to the moors by Hindley, who said she had lost her gloves there and needed help finding them. It would be two decades later that Pauline's grieving parents would eventually find out exactly what had happened to her when her body was discovered in 1987 after the murderers confessed to the killing. Brady and Hindley were taken to the bleak Saddleworth Moor where they located the shallow grave they had dug over 20 years before. Pauline was still wearing her pink and gold party dress and her blue coat. Brady had beaten her about the head and cut her throat with such force that her spinal cord was severed. Pathologists said it was impossible to say whether Brady had sexually assaulted her. Four months after Pauline vanished, 12-year-old John Kilbride became Brady's second victim that November. In the shadow of a major worldwide news event that also took place at the time, little attention was paid to the disappearance of the Manchester boy. John was lured onto the moor where he was sexually assaulted and murdered. Brady took a photograph of Hindley standing on the edge of his grave holding her pet dog. The photograph would later lead police to the young boy's resting place. The body of the third victim, Keith Bennett, aged 12, has never been found. Keith died after leaving his home in Chorlton-on-Medlock in Manchester on June 16, 1964. Police mounted an intensive search of the moor in 1986 amid reports that the pair had confessed to his murder. But even though Brady and Hindley were both permitted to travel to the moor to try and remember where the boy's remains were, they were not found. It was Brady and Hindley's next killing that sealed their reputation for pure wickedness. The murder of 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey on Boxing Day 1964. She became their youngest victim when she was lured from a fairground to the house Hindley shared with her grandmother in Hattersley. Her last moments were recorded on a harrowing 16-minute, 21-second audio tape which was played at Brady and Hindley's trial. Her cries reduced the judge, jury, courtroom spectators and even hardened police officers to tears. John Stalker, former Deputy Chief Constable of Greater Manchester, who was then a detective sergeant, expressed the feelings of many in the courtroom when he said, Nothing in criminal behaviour before or since has penetrated my heart with quite the same paralysing intensity. Detectives could not say exactly how Leslie Ann died, her body was dug up naked except for her shoes and her socks. Had the pair not made a crucial blunder in involving Hindley's brother-in-law David Smith in their next enterprise, the murder of Edward Evans, 17, might not have been their last. Edward was lured from a gay bar to a home then shared by Hindley and Brady on the Hattersley estate at Hyde. Smith was summoned to the house by a phone call on a false pretext. He was then forced to watch as Brady attacked Evans with an axe, smothered him with a cushion and completed his grim task with an electric cable. 
Shocked, Smith then helped the pair carry the trussed-up body into a bedroom. He then fled, terrified, and called the police. The next morning, police searched the house and began to unravel the gruesome evidence of Brady and Hindley's appalling crimes. March, the divorce case of the Duke and Duchess of Argyle caused scandal in the United Kingdom. A series of Polaroid photographs were used as evidence in the bitter and acrimonious divorce case between the Duke and Duchess of Argyle in 1963. They featured Margaret the Duchess, a former debutante of the year, in her Art Deco-style bathroom at her upper Grosvenor Street home, dressed in nothing but a signature three-strand pearl necklace. More shockingly, they showed her performing fellatio on a naked man whose identity was concealed because his head was not captured within the frame. Other Polaroid photographs showed a man masturbating for the camera in the same bathroom. The press, overexcited with the ongoing Profumo affair, started to question who exactly was the headless man. There were very strong rumours it might be a cabinet minister or even a famous film star. The press had a field day and the Duchess's reputation was ruined not only because of the Polaroid photos, but she was accused with sleeping with 88 men, including two cabinet ministers and two members of the royal family. It was said that an accidental fall 40 feet down a lift shaft during the war left her not only with a lack of taste and smell, but with a voracious sexual appetite bordering on nymphomania. Within two weeks of the Judge Wheatley's verdict on June the 5th, John Profumo resigned after admitting that he'd slept with Christine Keeler. The Duke and Duchess and the headless man photos were for a short while almost forgotten. However, at a stormy cabinet meeting on June the 20th, the Defence Secretary, Duncan Sands, incidentally the son-in-law of Winston Churchill, confessed that he was rumoured to be the headless man. Sands offered to resign, but he was dissuaded by Prime Minister Macmillan, who, because of the Profumo affair, was frightened of even more scandal for the government. Lord Denning, who had already been commissioned to investigate the Profumo scandal, was also asked to investigate the identity of the headless lover as part of the remit. There were four Polaroids of a man in different states of arousal, each with handwritten captions. Before, thinking of you, during, oh, and finished. Denning knew that if he could match the handwriting, he would find his man. He cunningly invited the five key suspects. Sands, the American actor, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., American businessman John Cohane, Peter Coombe, an ex-press officer at the Savoy, and Sigmund von Braun, the diplomat brother of the Nazi scientist Werner von Braun, to the Treasury, and asked for their help in a very delicate matter. On arriving, they all signed the visitor's register, and their handwriting was analysed by a graphologist. The result proved conclusive. Although Denning didn't include the result in his report, the headless man was identified by the handwriting expert as the actor Douglas Fairbanks Jr. The Duchess's reputation, of course, was ruined after the divorce case and ensuing scandal. 
but she was also ruined financially and eventually had to sell her house in Upper Grosvenor Street. She died in a Pimlico nursing home in July 1993 and was buried next to her first husband, the amateur American golfer Charles Sweeney. When you walk through a storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of a stone There's a golden sky And the sweet silver song of love Walk on through the wind Walk on through the rain On April 15th, 70,000 marchers arrived in London from Aldermaston to demonstrate against nuclear weapons. The Aldermaston marches were anti-nuclear weapons demonstrations in the 1950s and 60s that took place on Easter weekend between the Atomic Weapons Research Establisher Aldermaston in Berkshire and London, over a distance of 52 miles. At their height in the early 1960s, they attracted tens of thousands of people and were the highlight of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament's calendar. The first Aldermaston march took place at Easter in 1958. By 1963, the marches had become an annual event organised by the CND, with over 100,000 protesters gathering in Trafalgar Square. In 1963, the Profumo Affair, the scandal that helped topple the Conservative Party government of Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Involving sex, a Russian spy and the Secretary of State for War, it captured the attention of the British public and discredited the government. party at the country estate of Lord Astor on July the 8th, 1961, British Secretary of State for War John Profumo, then a rising 46-year-old Conservative Party politician, 
was introduced to 19-year-old London dancer Christine Keeler by Stephen Ward, an osteopath with contacts in both the aristocracy and the underworld. Also present at this gathering was a Russian military attaché, Eugene Ivanov, who was Keeler's lover. Through Ward's influence, Profumo began an affair with Keeler, and rumours of their involvement soon began to spread. In March 1963, Profumo lied about the affair to Parliament, stating that there was no impropriety whatsoever in his relationship with Keeler. Evidence to the contrary quickly became too great to hide, however, and ten weeks later, Profumo resigned, admitting with deep remorse that he had deceived the House of Commons. Prime Minister Macmillan continued in office until October, but the scandal was pivotal in his eventual downfall, and within a year, the opposition Labour Party defeated the Conservatives in a national election. Despite charges of attempted espionage, neither the FBI nor British intelligence was able to confirm or deny that Ivanov had attempted to entrap Profumo or to use Keeler as an access agent. Ivanov left Britain before the scandal became public, attending the Academy of General Staff, and later serving in important intelligence positions until his retirement in The Fumo affair was the biggest political sleaze story of the decade and threatened to topple the Conservative government under Harold Macmillan. It also scandalised the nation, especially after sordid details of Dr Stephen Ward's lifestyle and his relationship with Christine Keeler and her friend Mandy Rice Davis came out of his trial. Forget him, forget him, forget him if he doesn't love you. Forget him if he doesn't care Don't let him tell you that he wants you Cause he can't give you love which isn't there Little girl, he's never dreaming of you He'll break your heart, you'll wait and see Keeler, who lived with Ward at his Wimpole Muse flat, said he had introduced her to Lord Astor at his Clifton stately home where she first met John Profumo. On the last day of the trial, on the 31st of July 1963, Stephen Ward took an overdose of sleeping tablets. He was found guilty whilst in a coma and died three days later. Less than two months after his death, an official report produced by Lord Denning, Master of the Rolls, concluded Profumo's affair with Keeler had not endangered national security. Shortly after this, the Prime Minister resigned, his ill health exacerbated by the scandal. He was replaced by Earl Hume, who announced his peerage to become Sir Alec Douglas Hume in order to take up office. For a full account of the sex and the sleaze, why not take a listen to episode 2 of Rainbow Valley where we give you the full gory details. Now, him, and come 
In June this year, Pope John XXIII passed away. He'd been diagnosed with gastric carcinoma nearly eight months before, but this had been kept from the public. He would hint at his ultimate fate two months earlier when he said to visitors, that which happens to all men perhaps will happen soon to the Pope who speaks to you today. The Pope died at 7.49pm local time of peritonitis due to a perforated stomach cancer on 3rd of June at the age of 81. He was buried on the 6th of June, ending a reign of four years, seven months. On the 3rd of December, US President Lyndon B. Johnson posthumously awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the United States' highest civilian award, in recognition of the good relationship between Pope John and the United States. Pope John XXIII would be succeeded by Pope Paul VI on June the 21st, becoming the 262nd Pope. June the 20th, the infamous hotline between Moscow and Washington was set up. Officially known as the Direct Communications Link, and unofficially as the Red Telephone, it was in fact a teleprinter link between the Pentagon and the Kremlin. It would be replaced by fax machines in 1986, and since 2008 the hotline has been a secure computer link over which messages are exchanged by email.
In June this year, Swedish Air Force Colonel Stig Venestrom was arrested as a spy for the Soviet Union. You'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I really care. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, 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 closer. Let me whisper in your ear. Say the words I love to hear. During the six years immediately before the arrest, he is believed to have handed over 20,000 pages of secret documents about the Swedish defences to his Soviet contacts. The information was chiefly about the Swedish Air Force's strategy, about their secret military bases and radar defence and mobilisation plans. Wernerstrom was initially sentenced to life in prison, but in 1972 the Swedish government changed the sentence to 20 years. He was eventually paroled in 1974 after serving a total of 10 years in prison. Let me whisper in your ear. On July the 30th, the Soviet newspaper Izvestia reported that British diplomat and double agent Kim Philby had been given asylum in Moscow. Philby was a high-ranking member of British intelligence who worked as a double agent before defecting to the Soviet Union, serving as both an NKVD and KGB operative. Listen. In 1963, Philby was revealed to be a member of the spy ring known as the Cambridge Five, the other members of which were Donald McLean, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt and possibly John Cairncross or Victor Rothschild. Of the five, Philby is believed to have been the most successful in providing secret information to the Soviet Union. His activities were moderated only by Joseph Stalin's fears that he was a triple agent providing Soviet intelligence to British authorities. On November the 23rd, the BBC broadcast the first episode of its new educational and science fiction series, Doctor Who. It was intended to be a regular weekly programme, each episode 25 minutes of transmission length. Discussions and plans for the programme have been in progress for a year. The head of drama, Sidney Newman, was mainly responsible for developing the programme, with the first format document for the series being written by Newman, along with the head of the script department, Donald Wilson, and staff writer C.E. Webber. Writer, Anthony Coburn, story editor, David Whittaker, and initial producer, Verity Lambert, also heavily contributed to the development of the series. The programme was originally intended to appeal to a family audience as an educational programme using time travel as a means to explore scientific ideas and famous moments in history. The second Doctor Who serial would introduce the Doctor's most famous and popular enemy, the Daleks, and was responsible for the BBC's first merchandising boom and what would become known as Dalek Mania the following year.
In December, Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped in Lake Tahoe, California. The 19-year-old, who was trying to follow in his father's footsteps by pursuing a singing career, was abducted at gunpoint from his hotel room at Harris Casino and taken to Canoga Park, an area of Southern California's San Fernando Valley. After a brief conversation between father and son on the telephone a few days later, the kidnappers demanded a ransom of $240,000. Barry Keenan, the young mastermind behind the scheme, had also considered abducting the sons of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. But he and his partners decided upon Frank Sinatra Jr. because they thought he would be tough enough to handle the stress of a kidnapping. Immediately following his son's abduction, Frank Sr. received offers of assistance from Attorney General Robert Kennedy and Sam Giancana, one of the country's most powerful organised crime leaders. He declined and instead accepted aid from the FBI. After a series of phone calls, the kidnappers revealed the drop point for the ransom money and said that Frank Jr. could be found on Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. In an attempt to avoid a public scene, law enforcement officials picked the young Sinatra up and brought him home in the trunk of their car. Within a couple of days, John Irwin, one of Keenan's partners, turned himself in to the San Diego FBI field office and confessed to the crime. By December the 14th, all the perpetrators had been located and arrested. During the trial, which took place in the spring of 1964, controversy erupted when the defendants claimed that Frank Jr. had orchestrated the abduction as an elaborate publicity stunt. Gladys Root, a flamboyant Los Angeles attorney, pursued this line of defence despite the fact that there was no evidence to support the accusation. Even after Keenan and the others were convicted, the rumours persisted. For his part, Keenan served four and a half years in a federal prison. sport in 1963 Chuck McKinley defeated Fred Stoll in the Wimbledon men's singles final 9-7-6-1-6-4 Rod Laver was the defending champion but was ineligible to compete after turning professional this year in the ladies singles Margaret Smith defeated Billie Jean Moffat 6-3-6-4 at Wembley the 1963 cup final was won by Manchester United who beat Leicester City 3-1 and Oxford won the 109th boat race, beating Cambridge by five lengths. The 
1963 World Series matched the two-time defending champion New York Yankees against the Los Angeles Dodgers, with the Dodgers sweeping the series in four games to capture their second title in five years. In horse racing, the Grand National was won by 66-1-shot Ayala, ridden by Pat Buckley, and in the Derby, the win by Relco was overshadowed for some time because of the revelation by the Daily Express that he had failed a drugs test. The incident took place in the context of a serious investigation into the doping of horses in British races. It was not until the October that the Jockey Club confirmed Relco as the winner, stating that the substances detected could not be positively identified and therefore could not be proved to have affected the result. At the end of June, Relco was scheduled to run in the Irish Derby, a made 11-8 favourite, but was withdrawn from the race minutes before the start after appearing to be lame leading to further suspicions of foul play. In June this year, a boxing match took place that featured one of the most controversial events in British sports. It also featured a cracking punch that very nearly changed the course of boxing history when Henry Cooper met Muhammad Ali in the first of their two meetings. Well, Henry Cooper's nothing but a tramp. He's a bum. I'm the world's greatest. He must fall in five rounds, but if you talk about me, I'll cut it three. Your prediction about Doug Jones didn't go quite right, though. Well, Doug Jones was a little tougher than I thought he was, but uh, I'll never fight another fella as tough as Doug Jones, not even that big, ugly bear Sonny Lister. Is he your next fight? Well, after I annihilate this Henry Cooper, I want that bear. And what's going to happen to him? him bad. What's going to happen to him? He might be great, but he'll fall in eight. Well, let, let him do the talking. He does enough for both of us. <clears throat> you wouldn't care to, to predict how long the fight will go? No, oh no, I, I don't. I never predict the round of a fight, but uh, let's say if the um, if the fight's as good as Z can chant, well, it's going to be a good fight for the public. That's all I can say. What do you think yeah. of Mr. Clare as a boxer? Well, I've only seen him on film. He, oh, he's a, he's a sharp fighter. He's a good fighter. But who do you think is going to win? Cooper. man to the last comes into the ring with this monster crown on his head and all the way down to the ringside through the rows of people with umbrellas so people were throwing things and trying to knock the crown off his head shake hands when the bell rings come out boxing and made the best man win brief instructions from tommy little the reef so here we go the fight of the year clay from the right hand corner against cooper of britain and Clare said, I'll beat him in five. We'll see. In the first round, Cooper surprised Ali by utilising offensive tactics, advancing on Ali and firing jabs, right jabs and double jabs. 
Many of Cooper's stronger punches, particularly the left hook, narrowly missed their mark due to Ali's ability to sway away from an incoming punch. Unexpectedly, Ali retired to his corner at the end of the round with a slight trickle of blood flowing from his right nostril. In the second round, Cooper continued with his aggressive tactics, but Ali's left jab now started connecting regularly with Cooper's face, and a slight cut opened up above Cooper's eyes. And now Cooper seems to be cut slightly underneath the left eye. In the third round, Ali connected with a left hook to Cooper's head and followed this up with a right jab that opened a deep gash above Cooper's left eyebrow. In the fourth round, with blood trickling down his face, Cooper continued with his aggressive tactics and started pursuing Ali who was now fooling around, moving and throwing only intermittent punches at Cooper. Near the end of the round, Cooper threw three successive jabs as Ali stood against the ropes. Ali retreated further against the ropes when Cooper unleashed a left hook which struck Ali squarely on his jaw, lifting Ali on impact. Two things happened simultaneously at this stage which saved Ali from a possible knockout. First, the round came to an end. Secondly, the ropes had cushioned Ali's fall. Angelo Dundee had escorted Ali to his corner at the end of round four. Dundee then waved to the referee, Tommy Little, and showed Little Ali's right glove, which had apparently split down the seam, revealing horsehair stuffing, which could have injured Cooper's eyes. Officials were requested to obtain a new pair of gloves for Ali. The resulting confusion led to the interval between round four and round five to be extended by 20 seconds, which gave Ali extra time to recover. In the fifth round, Ali adopted the aggressive tactics himself, throwing a flurry of quick punches at Cooper, which resulted in photographers near the ring being splashed with Cooper's blood. Two minutes and 15 seconds into the fifth round, the fight was stopped and Ali was declared the winner. Immediately after the fight, Ali retracted the abuses he had directed at Cooper before the fight, and he declared, Cooper's not a bum anymore, I underestimated him. He's the toughest fighter I ever met, and the first to really drop me. He's a real fighter. Cooper's left hook, which had dropped Ali, made him a celebrity after the fight. And according to Cooper, 
Ali had always said that in the 15th round of the Frazier fight, he went down more from exhaustion. But the punch that Cooper hit me with, he didn't just shake me, he shook my relations back in Africa. The beginning of the decade was an optimistic time in Cyprus. Having recently gained independence, Nicosia became the capital of Greek Cypriots leading a power-sharing government with the Turkish Cypriots. But by 1963, tensions were high between the two communities over a dispute surrounding the constitution, and in particular, 13 amendments proposed by the former Archbishop Makarios, now president. You were made for me Everybody tells me so You were made for me Don't be tempted you down now 21st of December 1963, on what would become known as Bloody Christmas, fighting erupted between the communities in Nicosia. In the days that followed, it spread across the rest of the island. At the same time, the power-sharing government collapsed. How this happened is one of the most contentious issues in modern Cypriot history. The Greek Cypriots argued that the Turkish Cypriots withdrew in order to form their own administration. The Turkish Cypriots maintained that they were forced out. Many Turkish Cypriots chose to withdraw from the government. However, in many cases, those who wished to stay in their jobs were prevented from doing so by the Greek Cypriots. Also, many of the Turkish Cypriots refused to attend because they feared for their lives after the recent violence that had erupted. In any event, in the days that followed the fighting, a frantic effort was made to calm tensions. In the end, on the 27th of December 1963, an interim peacekeeping force, the Joint Truce Force, was put together by Britain, Greece and Turkey. After the partnership government collapsed, the Greek Cypriot-led administration was recognised as the legitimate government in February the following year. Everybody tells me so, you were made for me, don't be tempted you down now. Also this year, Harvey Ball invented the ubiquitous smiley face symbol, an image that will forever be associated with the 60s, peace, love, hippies, and eventually the burgeoning drug scene. In 1963, the State Mutual Life Insurance Company of Worcester, Massachusetts, bought the Guarantee Mutual Insurance Company of Ohio, and the merger resulted in a low employee morale. Promotions director Joy Young was assigned with creating a visual icon to accompany a friendship campaign the company hoped would improve the situation. 
She hired Ball to sketch something to be used on badges, and Ball came up with a smiley face on a bright yellow background. The original design consisted only of a grinning mouth, but Ball, realising the badge could easily be inverted to send the wrong message, i.e. a frown, decided to add eyeballs. The left eye was deliberately created slightly smaller than the right in order to humanise the drawing through its imperfection. The design took him less than 10 minutes to complete. He was paid $45 for his work. Neither Ball nor the insurance company bothered to copyright the creation. In an interview with the Telegram and Gazette, Harvey's son Charles Ball said his father never regretted the missed revenue opportunity. He was not a money-driven guy, said Charles. The original badge had only a 7 8 of an inch radius. State Mutual Life Insurance first produced only 100 badges for its employees, but soon clients began requesting them and the company started ordering the badges in batches of 10,000. Later that year, a syndicated TV show called The Funny Company would feature a TV character with a smiley face logo pinned on its hat, bringing it further exposure. In the early 1970s, brothers Bernard and Murray Spain added the tagline, Have a happy day, later amended to have a nice day, and copyrighted the logo and the slogan combination. The smiley face badge then became a national fad lasting nearly two years before peaking in 1972. By that time, the Spain brothers had sold an estimated 50 million smiley face badges, not to mention smiley face posters, coffee mugs, t-shirts, etc. He picked me up at seven and he looked so 1963 would also see the launch of the Porsche 911, the Vauxhall Viva and the Cindy doll. Typical of the decade, this year proved to be a busy one for the space race. In May, the final mission of the Mercury programme was launched with Gordon Cooper piloting the Mercury Atlas 9. Four weeks later, NASA Administrator James E. Webb told Congress that the programme was now complete, paving the way for the upcoming Apollo missions. 
Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space on board Vostok 6, returning to Earth three days later. After Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space in 1961, Tereshkova volunteered for the Soviet space program. Although she didn't have any experience as a pilot, she was accepted into the program because of her 126 parachute jumps. At the time, cosmonauts had to parachute from their capsule seconds before they hit the ground on returning to Earth. Along with four other women, Tereshkova received 18 months of training, which included tests to determine how she would react to long periods of time being alone, to extreme gravity conditions, and to zero gravity conditions. Of the five women, only Tereshkova went into space. Tereshkova was chosen to pilot Vostok 6. It was to be a dual mission. Cosmonaut Valery Bukovsky launched on Vostok 5 on June the 14th. Two days later, Tereshkova launched. The two spacecraft took different orbits and came within three miles of each other. The cosmonauts exchanged communications in space. Tereshkova logged more than 70 hours in space and made 48 orbits of the Earth. Soviet and European TV viewers saw her smiling face and her logbook floating in front of her. What they didn't realise, however, was that the flight almost turned into tragedy a fact that was classified for about 40 years. An error in the spacecraft's automatic navigation software caused the ship to move away from Earth, according to the RT News Channel. Tereshkova noticed this, and Soviet scientists quickly developed a new landing algorithm. Tereshkova landed safely, but received a massive bruise on her face. She landed in the Altay region, near today's Kazakhstan-Mongolia-China border. Villagers helped Tereshkova out of her spacesuit and asked her to join them for dinner. She accepted and was later reprimanded for violating the rules and not undergoing medical tests first. However, Tereshkova was honoured with the title Hero of the Soviet Union. She received the Order of Lenin and the Gold Star Medal. She became a spokesperson for the Soviet Union and while fulfilling this role she received the United Nations Gold Medal of Peace. Meanwhile, in America, legends were being born at Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California, where the American test pilots who had the right stuff were setting and breaking records on an almost daily basis. In July, Joe Walker, flying the X-15, reached an altitude of 65.8 miles, making it a sub-orbital spaceflight by recognised international standards. One month later, he would pilot the X-15 even higher, this time to 67 miles. And in December, Chuck Yeager narrowly escaped death while testing an NF-104A rocket-augmented aerospace trainer when his aircraft went out of control at nearly 21 miles up and crashed. 
He parachuted to safety at 8,500 feet after vainly battling to gain control of the powerless, rapidly falling craft. In this incident, he became the first pilot to make an emergency ejection in the full pressure suit needed for high altitude flights. In Europe, France and West Germany signed the Elysee Treaty in January, and in the same month, French President Charles de Gaulle vetoed the United Kingdom's entry into the European Common Market. On March the 4th in Paris, six people were sentenced to death for conspiring to assassinate President de Gaulle. De Gaulle pardoned five, but the other conspirator, Jean Bastien Thierry, was executed by a firing squad several days later. Mais notre père Dominique, par sa joie, le convertit. Dominique, Dominique, s'en allait tout simplement. Coutier, pauvre et chantant. En tout chemin, en tout lieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu. Il ne parle que du bon Dieu. Ni chameau, ni diligence, il parcourt l'Europe à pied. Scandinavie ou Provence, dans la sainte pauvreté. Dominique, Dominique, s'en allait tout simplement. Coutier, pauvre et chantant. February the 11th, the Beatles record their debut album Please Please Me in a single day at the Abbey Road Studios in London.
Stone's first single would reach number 21 in the UK chart in June. Come On was followed with I Wanna Be Your Man, written by Lennon and McCartney, and it would hover on the edges of the top 10 in November, peaking at number 12. the 5th in Camden, Tennessee, country music superstar Patsy Cline was killed in a plane crash, along with fellow performers Hawkshaw Hawkins, Cowboy Copus and Cline's manager and pilot Randy Hughes, while returning from a benefit performance in Kansas City. I should 
about you. his second and most influential studio album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan. It opened with the track Blowing in the Wind. Blowing in the Wind has been recorded by hundreds of artists over the years. The most commercially successful version is by folk music trio Peter, Paul and Mary, who released the song in June this year, three weeks after The Freewheeling Bob Dylan was issued. Albert Grossman, then managing both Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary, bought the trio the song, which they promptly recorded in a single take, and then released their version, which was the title track of their third album. It peaked at number two on the Billboard chart. November this year would also see the release of the Phil Spector A Christmas Gift For You album, and the Beatles' second UK album with The Beatles. How many roads must a man walk down Before they call him a man Must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer. Must a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend? That he just doesn't see The answer, my friend Is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind How many times must a man look up Before he can see the sky one man have before he can hear people cry How many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died The answer my friend is blowing in the wind 
1963 was an unprecedented year for both natural and man-made disasters. In February, Northwest Airlines Flight 705 crashed in the Florida Everglades, killing all 43 aboard, and an earthquake hit northern Libya causing over 350 deaths. In March, 1,500 people died following the eruption of Mount Aegung on the island of Bali, and in April, the US nuclear submarine Thresher sank 221 miles east of Cape Cod, killing all 129 people aboard. A fire ripped through the Le Mans Theatre in Senegal in May this year, killing 64 and Hurricane Flora, one of the worst Atlantic storms in history, hit Hispaniola and Cuba, leaving 1,800 dead. Also in October, in northeast Italy, over 2,000 people were killed when a large landslide behind the Vajont Dam caused a giant wave of water to overtop it, and seven were killed when a fire broke out in a Soviet Union R-9 Desna underground missile silo. There was a gas explosion during a holiday on ice show at the Indiana State Fair Coliseum in Indianapolis in October, leaving 74 dead. And in what became known as the Miracle of Lunged, 11 German miners were rescued from a collapsed mine after 14 days underground. And if all this wasn't enough, November would also witness the crash of a Finnair aircraft in the Aland Islands, a coal mine explosion in Japan that killed 458 and sent nearly a thousand to hospital with carbon monoxide poisoning, as well as a triple rail disaster in Yokohama which killed 161. There was a fire at the Golden Age nursing home in Ohio which claimed 63 lives, and Canada's worst airline disaster to date when 180 people on board a Douglas DC-8 died after the plane crashed into woodland shortly after takeoff from Montreal. The year would finish with the crash of Pan Am Flight 214 in Maryland killing 81 people, and a fire on board the cruise ship Laconia, 180 miles north of Madeira, with a loss of 128 lives. UK politics this year would see Harold Wilson becoming leader of the opposition Labour Party in February following the death of Hugh Gateskill. Cry 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 
In October, following the scandal that was the Perfumo affair, Alex Douglas Hume succeeded Harold Macmillan as Prime Minister. June the 26th, the US President John F. Kennedy made a groundbreaking speech in Berlin offering American solidarity to the citizens of West Germany. A crowd of 120,000 Berliners gathered in front of the City Hall to hear President Kennedy speak. They began gathering in the square long before he was due to arrive, and when he finally appeared on the podium they gave him an ovation of several minutes. The President had just returned from a visit on foot to one of the Berlin Wall's most notorious crossing points, Checkpoint Charlie. He was watched from the other side of the border by small groups of East Berliners unable even to wave because of the presence of large groups of the East German People's Police. In an impassioned speech, the President told them West Berlin was a symbol of freedom in a world threatened by the Cold War. 2,000 years ago, he told the crowd, the proudest boast in the world was Civis Romanus Sum. Today in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. Freedom has many difficulties and democracy is not perfect, he continued, but we never had to put up a wall to keep our people in. His speech was punctuated throughout by rapturous cheers of approval. He ended on the theme he'd begun with. There are many people in the world who really don't understand or say they don't. What is the great issue? between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin.
freedom has many difficulties. And democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in, to prevent them from leaving us. All, all free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the word, Ich bin ein Berliner. After the speech, the mayor of West Berlin, Willy Brandt, spoke out for the citizens of East Germany, saying that they would be brought out in a few days to greet the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, whether they wanted to or not. But they would much rather be with us freely gathered here, he said. We tell them, we will not give up. Berlin is true to those behind barbed wire as the fellow countrymen in the West and friends in the whole world. His words were followed by the tolling of the Freedom Bell from the Belfry of the Rathaus in remembrance of those in East Germany, and for the first time that day the massive crowd fell silent. On November the 21st, 1963, President Kennedy, accompanied by his wife Jacqueline Kennedy and Vice President Johnson, undertook a two-day, five-city fundraising trip to Texas. The trip was also likely intended as an attempt to help bring together a feuding Democratic Party in a state that was vital to Kennedy's chances for re-election in 1964. Although Adlai Stevenson, the US Ambassador to the United Nations and a liberal icon, had been confronted by highly agitated protesters a month earlier during a visit to Dallas, a city with a right-leaning press and the locus of much anti-Kennedy feeling, the President was warmly welcomed at his first two stops, San Antonio and Houston, as well as at Fort Worth, where the Presidential Party spent the night of November the 21st. 
The next morning, after making a speech in a parking lot in front of the hotel in which he'd stayed, and then speaking again at a Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce breakfast, Kennedy and his party made a short flight to Dallas's Love Field Airport. After Dallas, the final stop on the trip was scheduled to be Austin. At the airport, the President and the First Lady shook hands with members of a hospitable crowd before boarding the back seat of a customised open convertible to ride with Democratic Texas Governor John Connolly's wife, who both sat in jump seats in front of the Kennedys, to the President's next stop, the trademark, where Kennedy was scheduled to deliver another speech. An estimated 200,000 people lined the roughly 10-mile route to the trademark. As the motorcade turned southwest on Elm Street and began travelling through Dealey Plaza on the edge of downtown Dallas, the President's convertible passed the multi-storey Texas School Book Depository building. Moments later, at about 12.30pm, shots rang out. A bullet pierced the base of the neck of the President, exited through his throat and then likely, according to the Warren report, passed through Governor Colony's shoulder and wrist, ultimately hitting his thigh. Another bullet struck Kennedy in the back of the head. The motorcade rushed to the nearby Parkland Memorial Hospital, reaching it quickly. However, doctors' efforts were futile. Kennedy was officially declared dead at 1pm, Connolly surviving his wounds. Over the next hour, as a shocked country and world learned of Kennedy's death, the drama of the pursuit and capture of his alleged assailant unfolded. Bullet cases were found near a window on the sixth floor of the book depository overlooking the plaza. A rifle was discovered elsewhere on the sixth floor. An accounting of the building's employees indicated that only two were missing. One was a man who had stepped outside to watch the motorcade and was barred by police from re-entering the building. The other, Lee Harvey Oswald, who had been working there for about a month. Oswald had been seen on the sixth floor about half an hour before the shooting and had also been encountered in the building by its superintendent and a policeman just after the shooting. Law enforcement circulated a description of him. Meanwhile, Oswald made his way to the boarding house where he'd been staying. Some 15 minutes after leaving the boarding house, he was confronted by a Dallas policeman, J.D. Tippett, who is thought to have believed that Oswald matched the description. Oswald shot and killed Tippett with a 38 revolver in the presence of a number of witnesses and was later seen entering the Texas theatre where at 1.50pm he was apprehended by the police. As those events unfolded, Johnson, fearing that the assassination of the president was just the first step in a much broader effort by the Soviets or other enemies of the United States to destabilise the American government, sought to effect a quick transition of executive authority and to seek safety by leaving Dallas by plane. At 2.38pm, before takeoff with Kennedy's corpse aboard, Johnson took the oath of office on Air Force One. Jacqueline Kennedy, still wearing blood-spattered clothes, stood by his side. 
Questioned by both law enforcement officers and the press, Oswald protested his innocence, claiming that he was a patsy. He requested to be represented by, but was never able to contact the staff attorney of the Communist Party USA, who was well known for his defence of communists. After being held for two days and two nights, Oswald was being transferred from Dallas City Hall, which contained the headquarters and jail of the Dallas Police Department, to the county jail on the morning of November the 24th, an event broadcast live on television. When Jack Ruby, a familiar face around the police station and known to police who frequented his club, was able to enter the basement parking garage of the City Hall. There, he shot Oswald with a handgun as the cameras looked on. Ruby later said that he'd shot Oswald to spare Jackie Kennedy from having to testify at Oswald's trial. Oswald was taken to Parkland Memorial Hospital, where previously Kennedy, and now Oswald too, died. Ruby would be tried, found guilty of murder on March the 14th, 1964, and sentenced to death. In October 66, however, a Texas appeals court reversed the conviction, though Ruby died January the 3rd, 1967, also at Parkland, before a new trial could be held. The protocols for the funeral of another assassinated President Abraham Lincoln were followed for Kennedy's funeral. Kennedy's body in a flag-draped casket lay in repose in the East Room of the White House on November the 23rd and was then transferred to the rotunda of the US Capitol to Lyons State where it was visited by some 250,000 people. On November the 25th, a morning country watched on television as a sombre parade conveyed the casket. Carried on a case and pulled by six horses, accompanied by a seventh riderless horse with black cavalry boots pointed backwards in the inverted stirrups, through the streets of Washington DC to St Matthew's Cathedral site of the funeral mass. As the cortege left the cathedral, Kennedy's son John Jr, who had just turned three, movingly saluted the casket which was interred at Arlington National Cemetery. Johnson, convinced that a conspiracy was at the root of the assassination, but not wanting the country to be pushed into rash action against either the Soviet Union or Cuba by the growing suspicion among Americans that the killing was a communist plot, moved towards closure with the creation on November 29, 1963 of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. That body, better known as the Warren Commission after its chairman, Supreme Court Chief Justice L. Warren, was charged with ascertaining, evaluating and reporting the facts relating to the assassination and to the death of Oswald. After some ten months of investigation and closed-door hearings, the Commission, drawing on a lengthy FBI report, eyewitness and expert testimony, Kennedy's autopsy, physical evidence, sophisticated analysis of home movies of the assassination shot by Orville Nix, Marie Muchmore and especially Abraham Zapruder, and scientific reenactments found that Oswald had acted alone. The resulting 888-page Warren report concluded that Oswald, who had become a skilled marksman as a Marine, had fired three shots. One that entered Kennedy's neck and exited through his throat before hitting Connolly. One that hit Kennedy in the back of the head, the fatal shot, and one miss. The conclusion drawn about the first shot, known as the single bullet theory, 
was dismissed by doubters who saw it as predicated on what they saw as the unfathomable movements of a magic bullet. Many disagreed with these findings and argued instead that there had been a second shooter on the grassy knoll in Dealey Plaza that the motorcade had been approaching and there were witnesses who thought they'd heard shots coming from the direction of a railroad yard beyond the knoll. The commission, however, determined that there had not been a conspiracy involving either Oswald or Ruby. The 35th Academy Awards honouring the best in film for 1962 were held on April 8, 1963 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in California and was hosted by Frank Sinatra. The Best Picture Award went to Lawrence of Arabia with David Lean picking up the Best Director honour. Best Actor Gregory Peck for his portrayal of Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird and Best Actress went to Anne Bancroft for The Miracle Worker. The year 1963 in film involved some significant events, including Alfred Hitchcock's horror movie The Birds and two films with all-star casts, How the West Was Won and It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. But perhaps the most significant movie released this year started life way back in 1958. A movie that would be notorious not only for the grand sweeping epic nature of its story, but for its troubled production. A movie whose costs spiralled out of control, almost bankrupting 20th Century Fox. A movie which even when still in production appeared on the front pages of the press day after day, mainly due to the love story that was unfolding behind the camera as well as in front of it. See you next time as I tell the story of Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton and Cleopatra.
Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast. You can send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production. Mm-hmm.